your Bibles out if you have them. If you don't have a Bible here with you, there are black pew Bibles. should be in front of you or if you're in the front row behind you. Uh, use that black pew Bible. We will be in Luke chapter 18 today. Luke chapter 18. That'll be near the back of that Bible. If you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take that one with you. It's, it's now yours. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. There were two men, one rich, one poor. Rich man has a ton of cattle, sheep, herds he can't even count. The poor man has nothing except... He takes his money, and he goes out and he buys one little lamb, just one. And he cherishes that lamb. He he feeds it from his own table. He holds it as it falls asleep in his arms. It's like a member of the family. It's like a child to him. And then somebody comes to visit the rich man. And the rich man doesn't turn to his own cattle and herds and sheep to provide a meal for that guest he goes next door to the poor man and he takes his only lamb and he cooks it and he feeds it to his guest now if you recognize this story this is a parable that the prophet Nathan told to the king David he was trying to convict David of David's sin at at this point David had taken another man's wife But David couldn't see himself in the story. So he's hearing this, and Scripture says David's heart burns with anger at this rich man. He says to Nathan, this man needs to die. And what does Nathan do? He turns to David and he says, you are this man. How did David not see that this was about him? It's because he's just like us. When we read scripture, when we see parables like this, there's a universal principle at work. And that is, it's always easier for you to see sin in somebody else than for you to see it in yourself. This morning, we're going to be looking at a parable about self-righteousness. Self-righteousness just means just trusting in yourself, trusting that you can, within yourself, generate a righteousness that will be acceptable to God. Sin is very hard to spot. It's very subtle. And it grows best in the hearts of people who look mostly holy from the outside. I think that's why you'll see here the Lord actually gives us an introductory statement to this parable today to tell us what's going on because it's hard to see this sin from the outside. So I want to warn you before we get started today. You're going to hear about a self-righteous Pharisee in this parable. And when you do, you may be tempted to think, I know someone like that. And maybe that you're just like David. What you need to be asking yourself and what I hope and pray you will ask yourself this morning is, am I that man? So let's pray and then I will read the text. Father, I need your help this morning. Lord, I am weak 
And Lord, I am preaching mostly to myself this morning. But I pray that through these words, this congregation will be built up. We pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us. We pray that you would help us to see ourselves truly as you do, and that we would be changed by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 9 through verse 14. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his own breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of God. Amen. So for those of you who are note takers, I have three points for you this morning. Three hooks to hang your hat on. Just three points. They are two men, two postures, and two prayers. Two men, two postures, and two prayers. Point number one, two men. Two men went up to the temple to pray. That's the beginning of Jesus' parable here. And when he introduces this parable, he's describing two very different men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, his audience at the time would have recognized that these men weren't just different. They were polar opposites, different in every possible way. And so when they heard this, they would have said, a Pharisee? Okay, I got it. This is the hero of the parable. You see, in in Jesus' day, there were two different sects that kind of split the Jewish religious order. You had the Pharisees on the one hand and the Sadducees on the other hand. Now, the Sadducees were known for being elite. They were very wealthy, very powerful. They had a lot of prominent positions in the religious order. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, well, they didn't have their influence from being wealthy and powerful. Their influence came from the fact that they were rigorously obeying God's law. They studied the Torah, and they obeyed it. The crowd Jesus was preaching to would have known these guys as the holiest men on earth, and they were were very popular among the common people. They were sort of seen as like role models, like like an everyday man's religious leader. And so if you'd ask this crowd, hey, who who among you is going to be sure to go to heaven? they would have immediately started scanning the crowd for the Pharisees to point to them. We saw when our sister Jenny read from Philippians earlier that Paul, when he lists his pre-Christian credentials, he says about himself in relationship to the law that he was a Pharisee. He doesn't have to explain anything past that. Everybody knows what that means. 
That means he was a holy man. He was a righteous man. He kept God's law obediently. So if the Pharisee was the obvious hero of this parable, the tax collector was just as obviously the villain. Tax collectors in the ancient world did what tax collectors do today. They took people's money, gave it to the government. So for some of us here, that may be enough of a reason in and of itself to identify the tax collector as the villain. But for the Jews of Jesus' audience, it was more than that. The tax collector was the villain because the tax collector was a traitor to God and his people. See, Rome had conquered Jerusalem about 100 years before Jesus stands here telling this parable. And the Jewish people knew that they were supposed to be governed by God and God's appointed king. And yet here they are, governed by a bunch of pagans. The question on everyone's mind was how? How can you be a faithful Jew while living under the rule of a pagan empire? And they didn't all agree. There was a lot of debate about this. But one thing everybody agreed on, they said, don't go work for the enemy. Right? That's what the tax collector was doing. If you were a tax collector, you went out and you assisted your oppressor in oppressing you and your people. This is why it was seen as turning your back on God to be a tax collector. This is why in Matthew 18, when Jesus teaches on the process of church discipline, when the church excommunicate someone. Jesus says you're to treat them like a tax collector. What he means there is you're to treat them as if someone as someone who's outside of God's covenant people. It's worse than that. Tax collectors were also known as being thieves. It's not really a surprise why when you're shunned by your people and they treat you with contempt, your heart hardens. And suddenly when you're tasked with going and taking their money, well, it's not that hard to take more than you should. And so tax collectors would take more than they needed to and they would take that extra money and they'd line their own pockets with it. This is our second man. So here we have the Pharisee, the best of the best, the religious man, and then we have the tax collector, the worst of the worst. So again, imagine you're a Jew sitting there listening to Jesus tell this parable. You think you've got it figured out. Good guy, bad guy. And then suddenly Jesus declares, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. To be justified means to be declared righteous in God's sight. How could this tax collector be right with God? You would have been shocked. You, a faithful Jew, study the Torah. You're listening to Jesus, and you would have thought to yourself, this is completely backwards. The holy man should be the one who's justified. Look at, look at the text here. Look at his prayer. The Old Testament law required the Jewish people to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. And what does this Pharisee say about himself? This guy's fasting twice per week. The law also required the Jewish people to give a tenth of their crops and their livestock to the temple. What is the Pharisee boasting about in his prayer? He says that he gives a tenth of everything he gets. This guy's going above and beyond. He's, he's so good at keeping God's law that he has to make up other laws to keep on top of it. And then you got the tax collector. This guy's admitting publicly that he's a sinner. 
In fact, where he calls himself a sinner in his prayer, the Greek literally says, the sinner. This is like a criminal being in a courtroom and admitting, judge, you got me, I did it, I'm guilty. And then getting to walk free. And Jesus explains it with just one statement. He says in verse 14 that the humble, those who humble themselves, will be exalted. And those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Is it any surprise that Jesus' disciples later in the book of Acts will be accused of trying to turn the world upside down? So what would be the right way to view these men? Well, first, we need to understand that they are both sinners. The tax collector is exactly right. He's a sinner. We know the Pharisee is a sinner because the scripture tells us that this parable is for men like him, right? That introductory statement. He also, verse 9, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's the Pharisee. All of the Pharisees' good works, which from the outside look good, are exactly what Paul described. They are rubbish. Remember, Paul was exactly like this man before he was saved. He knows what he's talking about. Those good works are rubbish because in the Pharisee's heart, he trusts in those works as the basis for his justification before God. So the difference between these men is really very simple. They're both sinners. One of them acknowledges that he's a sinner, and the other one is completely blind to it. This parable has two villains, both of these men. So who's the hero? God is the hero. God is the hero as he shows mercy to the tax collector. The application here is fairly simple. It's this. If you recognize that you're a sinner like the tax collector does, God's mercy is for you. That's who it's for. Now, listen carefully. I'm not saying if you admit that you are a sinner. Everyone I've ever talked to, Christian or not, will admit that they've done things wrong. It's, are you a sinner like this tax collector? This tax collector is fully acknowledging the depth of his sin. It means he's acknowledging that he is spiritually bankrupt. That means you have to acknowledge that you too have nothing to bring to God. You have no good works to stand on. You're guilty. That can sound and feel very offensive. It might be offensive to you. It's offensive to all sinners. It forces us to swallow our pride in a way that we never have before and to humble ourselves before God. I know how hard that is. I, I fought that for 20 years of my life. But if you can get past that initial revulsion, that instinct that tries to protect your pride and protect your good works, if you can get past that, you will find the richest reward of mercy and grace from God that will make it so worth it. I want you to know that this message is the opposite of every false religion in the world. Every other religion, every warping of Christianity that changes the gospel, 
every pagan belief, they all teach that we can earn God's favor by the way we live. Every one of them. How do they do this? Well, one of two ways, or both. They deny the holiness of God, they bring God down a notch, or they deny the sinfulness of man and bring man up a notch, or they do both at the same time. In the providence of God, if, if you were here in the Sunday school this morning that our brother Matthew Martins taught, he went to the parable of the prodigal son, where the lawyer comes to Jesus and, and thinks he's got it all figured out. And Jesus asks him, hey, what does the law say? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And our brother pointed out, what's the first thing that this young lawyer says? Well, who's my neighbor? He's trying to shrink that pool. He's trying to bring down the demands of the law enough to where he can justify himself. It's the same thing every false religion does. And if you bring God down enough and you bring man up enough, it starts to look like you can bridge that gap yourself. You can make yourself right with God by the way you live. Scripture says that even our good works are like filthy rags before a holy God. And Jesus says the standard for entry into God's presence is perfection. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We can't bridge that gap. That's why this is good news. Only God himself can do that. And that's an act of his mercy. And here's the important thing. Here's what Christianity offers that no other religion can offer. This is where hope is. It's in mercy. Mercy means showing forgiveness and compassion to people who don't deserve it. In fact, they deserve the opposite. So when you recognize that you don't deserve it, when you see yourself as a sinner, when you see yourself as guilty before a holy God, guess what? That means this is for you. This gospel is for you. And when you see finally and fully the depth of your own sin, that's when you see the immeasurable depth of God's mercy. Point number two, two postures. Your posture is how you hold your body. Kids, you've probably been told it's bad posture to sit in front of the computer slouched. You've probably been told it's good posture to sit upright at the dinner table. But posture also communicates something, doesn't it? We stand when we read our call to worship because we want to show through our posture our honor to God's word. So, when these two men go to the temple to pray, what does their posture communicate to us? How do they hold their bodies? So remember, the temple isn't just any old building. The temple was the dwelling place of God among his people. So these two men are going before the throne of God's grace to seek an audience with him. And their posture tells us something about their hearts when they do that. Let's look at the Pharisee, verse 11. It says, when the Pharisee came to the temple, he was standing by himself. The Pharisee is standing by himself. That doesn't mean he found some secluded corner to go pray in alone. In fact, it's the opposite. You see, the temple at the time had divisions. So there was a section of the temple for the common person, and then there was a section for like the elite VIP religious order. So when it says he was standing by himself, Think of it as he was in the crowd and then he stood on the opposite side of that velvet rope. 
in the VIP section to begin his prayer. Imagine the self-satisfaction that you'd be tempted to if you could do something like that. If you've ever had a first-class ticket on a flight, you kind of know what this feels like. Uh, When you begin the boarding process, if you have a first-class ticket and they start to board, where do you go? Right to the front. And you stand there by that gate waiting to be called front of the line while 200 other people stand there in a clump staring at you. And you're, you're Mr. First Class. It feels pretty good. You're standing alone, but you're not really alone. The Pharisee is standing alone, a lot like an actor standing alone in the middle of a stage. It's no wonder that Jesus, throughout the New Testament, calls these men hypocrites. The word hypocrite is the Greek word for the actor who would put on a mask and pretend to be someone else in front of other people. That's what he's doing. This Pharisee is pretending to be at the temple to engage with God. In reality, he's at the temple to be seen by other people. Now compare this to the tax collector. Here the tax collector's, uh, the text says, he is standing far off. He's standing far off. This is verse 13. So he's also standing in a way that separates him from other people. But unlike the Pharisee, he's not doing that for attention. He's not concerned with other people. He's there to be seen by God. And the way he's standing shows that. He's lived far from God, so he's choosing to stand far from the presence of God. He may even be thinking of the words of Psalm 1, the first psalm, which says, Sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. And by his posture, he's confessing to God, I'm one of those sinners. The Pharisee stands alone in self-exaltation, while the tax collector stands alone in self-humiliation. Next, let's look at this man's eyes. The tax collector, it says, would not even lift them up to heaven. He hasn't rehearsed these movements. This is truly sincere. Psalm 18 says that the Lord saves a humble people, but brings down haughty eyes. The Lord has brought this man's eyes down. He's been convicted by God that he's a sinner, and he knows he deserves God's judgment. And his eyes have caused him to sin, so he casts them to the ground. His physical eyes are looking down because the eyes of his heart are fixed on God. Well, the Pharisee, standing across the room, has his physical eyes up to heaven, but the eyes of his heart are looking at all the people around him. Now, look at this final gesture in verse 13. He beat his breast. As he begins his prayer, he is he's striking himself in frustration. He knows the source of his sin. He knows it's his heart. And this bodily gesture is acting out that knowledge. He recognizes that all of his wickedness, all of his pain, all of his sin comes from inside of him. If his heart had a face, he would slap it. Earlier in Luke's gospel, we see the Pharisees ask Jesus, hey, why are you hanging out with sinners like like tax collectors? And Jesus responds 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, they do. And this tax collector knows he's sick. Every gesture of his body shows that. He knows he can't change his own heart, and so he turns to God. The Pharisee stands there proudly, blind to his own sin. And so he doesn't ask God for mercy because he doesn't think he needs it. Now, what we see happening here with this Pharisee didn't stop in the first century. Everywhere, human beings are prone to act outwardly, in outwardly religious ways, just to be seen by others. In some churches this morning, across the city, across our country, there will be men and women who do all sorts of things to be seen by others. Maybe they cross themselves. Maybe they gesticulate. They take a knee when they come into the church. Maybe they just give money in the offering plate intentionally in front of others to be seen. A good thing, but underneath the surface, it's their heart desiring the esteem of man. In other churches, men and women may fall on the ground in great emotional displays, not because they feel something, but because they want others to look at them and think the Holy Spirit's at work in that person. If you're a Christian, understand both of these men live in our hearts. The tax collector and the Pharisee. And I wonder, what would the Pharisee in our hearts, what would temptation to act like him look like in our church for us? I think for you and me, it would look like a temptation to show others that we've got all of our doctrinal ducks in a row. We've got our theology figured out. We have the right answer to all the, the major questions in the evangelical world right now. So we should ask, do you correct other people's doctrine? Do you always make sure to give the right theologically precise answer in your small group or in your Sunday school class? Do you make sure to tell your friends that are at other churches that they're not really worshiping the way God would want them to? They don't really understand church membership. Maybe they landed on the wrong side of, of one of those evangelical debates, something political or social like critical race theory. Do you point that out to your friends and family? Now, none of these things is necessarily wrong. It's a good thing to give good, godly answers to theological questions. The Bible tells us to correct one another, but... This is what makes self-righteousness so dangerous. Even worse, the Pharisee's self-righteousness was particularly potent because he was so good at outwardly keeping God's law. When our theology is strong, when we know our Bibles well, self-righteousness is, is, is a risk, a very real risk. So what can we do about this? Well, Force your words and your actions around others to hit a speed bump in your heart before they come out of your mouth, before you act on them. That speed bump should just be a question, just a self-diagnosis, a question like this, where is my heart? Am I saying this so that others will hear me and be impressed? I can tell you right now, I caught myself doing that this morning in our Sunday school class a desire to say something that by God's grace, I just, I recognize it. I'm just saying that so Matthew Martins will be impressed by me. And so I didn't say it. 
Ask yourself that question. Am I really looking to please God and edify others? Or am I trying to flex my theological muscles? Point number three. Two prayers. Let's look at the Pharisee's prayer here in verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. It's easy to misdiagnose this prayer. You might uh, read this and think that the Pharisee is wrong because the Pharisee is comparing himself to other people. In fact, there's, you can find sermons all over the internet that will tell you that this parable is all about how to treat others. That is not correct. This Pharisee's prayer is actually echoing language that we see in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 26. Let me just read you a couple verses of that psalm. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. But as for me, I shall walk in integrity. That's God's word. You see, it's, it's perfectly good and it's perfectly acceptable to thank God that you're not as evil as you could be. It's okay to thank God that you and I are not drug dealers and adulterers and murderers or apostates or all of the above. After all, it's only by God's grace that any of that is true. The Pharisee's prayer is wrong because his heart is wrong. He's giving lip service to God. He's thanking God. But he's not really talking to God because he's trusting in himself that he's not like those other men. He thinks it's something in him, his innate goodness and his efforts in keeping the law that have made him different from those men. And that turns into contempt for those men. Good words and good actions plus a bad heart equals condemned. This is not the first time that Jesus condemns people for doing something that is outwardly good, but in them they had an evil heart. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us that the Pharisees give to the needy and the poor. That's a good work, but they do it for the wrong reasons, and they are condemned for it. Do you want to thank God that you're not like someone who's more sinful without any risk of self-righteousness? It's easy. Thank God you're not like the person you used to be. Let's go back to the Pharisee. We need to ask at this point, is he even really praying? Is he even talking to God? Again, he tacks this thank God onto the front of his prayer, but we know he's not really praying to God, is he? He's praying to his audience. He's praying to the people around him to be heard by them. Look, look at his words. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. He, he's got to be paying pretty close attention to the people in that room to say that. The text tells us the tax collector was standing far off. He is eyeing the crowd to know who will hear him. He's paying careful attention to everyone in that room except God. And this is important because you and I, we will always pray to whoever or whatever we worship. If you worship a false god, that's who your prayers will be addressed to. This Pharisee idolizes the approval of men. He's made that his god. And so he prays to that false god to be heard by these men. 
And this is why the Pharisee leaves the temple condemned. He doesn't pray to the God who justifies because he doesn't even really believe in the God who justifies. The tax collector, on the other hand, completely ignores the Pharisee. He is only concerned with God. He's praying, unlike the Pharisee, to the true God. And the words of his prayer show that. They, they show he's praying to the true God. We see that because he acknowledges what God says about him. He says, I'm a sinner. We see that because he's acknowledging what God has said about himself. The true God is a God of mercy. And even more specifically, he's, he knows he's praying to the true God. We know that because of the way he talks about God's mercy. The word here, mercy, is actually a very special word that's translated mercy. It's the word we also translate as propitiation in the New Testament. And propitiation, it's just a fancy word for this. It's the averting or the turning away of God's wrath through offering him a sacrifice. That's the kind of mercy that he's asking for. Not only does he know that God's merciful, he knows that God is just and that God's wrath must in some way be satisfied if he is to forgive. He knows the blood of oxen and the blood of bulls is not going to pay for his sins. And so he's asking God to save him by providing a sacrifice. Next, Jesus gives us the end, the, the reminder of the significance of this lesson. Again, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The reminder here is, is what this parable is about. This parable is not on how to pray. It's not here to teach you how to treat other people. It's not even ultimately here to teach you how to avoid the sin of self-righteousness. It's about how we can be right with God. And it's about who will dwell with God for eternity in heaven and who will suffer in hell eternal torment. That's what this last verse means here. Je Jesus says that if we humble ourselves like this tax collector, we will live. We will have eternal life. We will be with him for eternity in heaven and we will have the blessings of Christ showered on us. We will be exalted in him. But those who exalt themselves here through their self-righteousness will be humbled. If you stand on your own self-righteousness, even now you are condemned and you are under the wrath of God. Someday you'll stand before him and all of those good works you're counting on will be exposed as worthless. One way or another, we will all be humbled by God, either in this life or the next. So I have one question for you. Have you prayed like this tax collector? I'm not asking if you've prayed a scripted sinner's prayer. You can read a sinner's prayer. You can read a sinner's prayer while crying real tears. And if underneath it all, your heart isn't changed and you still trust in your own righteousness, then those are just words. In fact, they may be worse than words. They may confuse you about your true state before God. 
I am asking if you've abandoned your trust in your own righteousness and turned and trusted Christ. Think back to how I started this sermon. You and I are so prone to hear this parable and to think it's talking about someone else. We all do it. But understand, it is perfectly possible for you to have been raised in a Christian family. And you, coming up in this Christian family, pray the sinner's prayer. You, you feel bad about your sins. You walk an aisle. You get a pastor to baptize you. You sit in a pew every day until you're 60, 70, 80 years old, nodding along to sermons like this one, amening, singing hymns, growing in your knowledge of the Bible, and then you die. And the entire time, you are trusting in your own self-righteousness. You are trusting in your spiritual resume. And you are praying prayers to a God that you never knew. You may even be thinking, no, that... That's not me. That can't be me. I've humbled myself. I've felt real sorrow over my sin. Maybe. But where's your heart? There are false teachers out there who teach that this parable is Jesus' way of instructing us that if we humble ourselves enough, that if we feel enough brokenheartedness and enough heartache over our sin, then we can attract God's favor to us. Brothers and sisters, if you believe that, that, that's just a different kind of Pharisee. All that is, is standing on your own works, but the work is your repentance. Do you see that? The work is, I cried over my sin, therefore God is in debt to me. The tax collector was declared righteous because he abandoned any trust he had in his own works and put his trust entirely in the work of Christ. His heart was aligned with his words. He trusted in Christ, the spotless lamb, the sacrifice for sinners like him. Have you done that? Have you done that? In a moment, we're going to sing a hymn here. The first verses of this hymn go like this. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. O oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only in you. It's my prayer and my hope this morning that when you sing these words, that's true of you, and that's true of your heart. And praise God that we have a merciful Savior who makes that true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would work on our hearts, and we pray in gratitude for your Savior, Jesus Christ, who as the spotless lamb satisfied your wrath and your justice for sinners like us. Lord, may we live like that. May we see ourselves rightly as you see us. And may your Holy Spirit convict us where we need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand.